This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more RAND analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Uh, welcome to this RAND Congressional Briefing. I'm Wynne Burkle, and I head up uh, the RAND Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in Washington, D.C. Let me begin for a moment by thanking uh, Chairwoman Ross Leitonen for our room here today. We're very grateful for her help. Uh, let me tell you briefly about RAND. The RAND Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. RAND focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, law and business, the environment, and more. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of political and commercial pressures. We serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's pressing challenges. RAND disseminates its findings and its recommendations as widely as possible to benefit the pub public good. Uh, more than 10,000 RAND reports and commentary are available online. The online inversions are free at www.rand.org, including the findings that you'll see presented here today. With that, uh, it's now my pleasure to introduce uh, Lowell Shorts to kick it off. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Wynn, and it's a real pleasure to be here on Capitol Hill again. Um, I'm, uh, as you're saying, I'm Lowell Schwartz. I'm a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Uh, I'm going to sort of start things off here, and then I'm going to introduce two of my colleagues. Uh, Jeff Martini is going to talk about another one of our studies, and then we're going to wrap up with uh, Dahlia Kasake, who's going to discuss some of our future thoughts on where we may be going with the research. Um, so this is sort of the outline I'm going to follow. First, I'm going to sort of kick off about, you know, why we're here, why does kind of culture uh, matter? Why is that important for sort of the policy-making community? Um, and then I'm going to introduce one of our reports, which is Barriers to the Broad Dissemination. Um, and we're going to offer some policy recommendations about how to improve the wider distribution of um, particularly written materials in the uh, Middle East Arab world. And then Jeff is going to talk about uh, the Children's Literature Project. Um, there were sort of two pieces. One was we gathered materials um, that fit a set of criteria um, to improve critical thinking and uh, promote tolerance. And then there was the other piece, which I will be talking about first, which are the barriers to the dissemination of these kinds of work. Um, so the first thing is sort of set a little context. The UN reports, which came out starting in 2002, on um, human development and then human security still probably are the best summation of some of the challenges that the region faces. Um, they identified three fundamental deficits that are going on to human development. First, the freedom deficit. Um, if you look at sort of international rankings of the Middle East, um, it tends to continue to be the most regarded as the most repressive and autocratic of um, any of the regions in the world. And this leads to sort of a, a deficit of freedom of civil and political rights in the region. Um, then this is also followed by a knowledge deficit. Uh, you know, as most of us know, when we talk about these debates in the United States, increasingly economic activity is centered on um, information, human capital, et cetera, and the Arab world does very poorly in these areas because of their weak educational systems and because of some of their weak institutions. And finally, they talked about a women's empowerment deficit, which is not just about um, you know, sort of the unfortunate circumstance of, of in, inequality, but also leads to poor outcomes in terms of health care because women aren't able to, you know, understand how to take care of their children, understand basic health measures, and educational opportunities are cut off, which feeds into this um, knowledge deficit. So these are sort of the three fundamental uh, deficits that we, we sort of root our thing in. Now, why is culture important? Why would it be important in addressing these 
challenges. And I think all of us in the room kind of inherently understand this. Um, culture, sort of as an ideological basis, is sort of underneath all of the higher level stuff that we talk about, politics, law, economics. Um, it sort of underlies them. It sort of defines for you what is possible. And in psychological terms, let's say it sort of provides a framework for you. Um, and I think probably all of us in this room can think of a, a book or a movie or a play that inspired us or made us think differently about things, sort of not necessarily immediately changed our mind, but had us sort of thinking about what is possible. Um, and in the context we're talking about here, especially in sort of authoritarian societies, it can provide an alternative view on what is possible, ways of life. They help erode the support for authoritarian political systems because authoritarian systems want to define, they want to bound what's possible to keep it within the realm of that serves their political purposes. And reform-minded stuff can kind of free your mind. You kind of think about, oh, well, things could possibly be different. Um, and one of the things that's most interesting we did in our research, um, we found that there are sort of burgeoning communities of artists and authors throughout the region who are focusing on sort of these important issues. Um, one of the stories I kind of tell as we've, we've kind of kicked this around Rand is how you know, surprised were we by the Arab Spring. And in some ways, I think we were surprised. I mean, I don't think anyone predicted sort of the speed that it came out, the way it moved from place to place. But perhaps we had an advantage, because many of our research is about in the region, that we met and talked with these artists, with these communities, with all these reform-minded people. And so when the people showed up in the streets and in the um, plazas of, of the Arab capitals, we recognized these people. I mean, they were sort of the kind of people that we had been meeting with. And so we realized that there was underneath this, this piece of support, this sort of hidden piece. And these folks are addressing all of these sort of critical social issues. So, you know, this, and at the bottom of the slide here, you kind of see what our, our basic message is, which is that art created by those living in the Middle East can help promote reform and counter the ideological underpinnings of many of the violent extremist groups that have been so prevalent. Now, artistic freedom, cultural freedom, are sort of pressed, by two, pressed in two directions. Excuse me. And this sort of also sets up, in some ways, the politics of what's going on in the region. On the one side, you have the authoritarian regimes. They, have, they censor artistic work. They send out the, the police to arrest people. They close bookstores. I mean, this is sort of the traditional thing I think we think about, about how artists are um, repressed. But what's somewhat unique in the, in the Middle East is you have this group on the right, which is the Islamic extremist movements. Um, and this is also goes to this kind of cultural piece. They are, in, these groups, in some ways, are trying to define what is possible in the culture and what is not what is outside of, of being a good uh, person of the, of the society. And reformists are sort of squeezed between these, these rival movements. And you'll see this reflected in some of the barriers that we, that we talk about. But I think the one message that I, you know, I try to give to audiences who are not in the Middle East is, and for us it's important to remember, that this group in the middle is actually, and we've seen this, is actually more important larger than a lot of people recognize, because often the choice is sort of presented as, well, you either get the authoritarian regimes or you get the Islamic extremist movement. That's all you've got there. So maybe we ought to support the authoritarian regimes. And I think the, one of the hopeful messages we've seen is there's actually more people in this middle category, and they're more important than we've kind of come to recognize previously. So let me just go through, I don't want to spend too much time, on the barriers that we identified. So the problem is, and I think many of us know this again, extremist materials, it overshadows these, these works that we've identified. And one of the reasons is there's sort of three barriers that we have. Censorship, uh, the marketplace itself, and the distribution networks. And so constructive works, which are you know, less to begin with, they kind of get filtered out and censored out of the system. 
So censorship. Um, almost every Arab country employs censors. Um, Saudi Arabia is mo the most restrictive, and it also happens to be one of the largest um, book markets in the country. So you have to sort of submit your work. It has to be approved, and this has all kinds of negative implications. Um, they can be censored for all kinds of reasons. They could be on sensitive topics, religious topics, and oftentimes there's sort of a collaboration between the official religious institutions who label something as offensive to Islam and the, author and the government who sort of takes this up as a, a reason to you know, keep the work from appearing. Um, there are obviously national security grounds. In places like Lebanon, there's often concern about inflaming sectarian violence. And finally, sometimes just things as simple as what's on the cover of the, of the, uh, of the book that's being produced or you know, the artwork on it. So that can do it. And what are the impacts of censorship? Not, not surprising, right? Negative impact on sales. It's harder to get a market. Um, occasionally, governments use force to close the stores. Um, there's also a personal danger once you're censored that, um, you know, and you're labeled, there's Authors have been assassinated, authors have been forced to go into exile, um, that kind of thing. And then you can imagine if you're an artist trying to produce work in this kind of climate, you tend to want to have your work come out and you, would, and you tend to sort of censor yourself. Oh, gee, you know, I don't want to write it exactly that way because I know that'll probably get me in trouble with the authorities, so maybe I'll shift it around. And some authors have just kind of given up because they feel like they can't really express their, their work properly. Um, there's a financial burden, but of course, as we know, and I was thinking about this on the way over, sort of like with Lady Gaga or something, you know, controversy, publicity, that can sometimes actually work in your favor because you, you go into the limelight. So how do, they over, how do some people overcome this? Um, well, they publish in foreign countries. Um, you can, Lebanon and Egypt are somewhat freer, and, and you know, we're still, this, this report I should mention came out about 18 months ago, and we're just starting to look into some of the implications, and we're hoping to do more of this. Uh, and Jeff, who just, who's going to follow me, was just in Egypt, and he can speak a little bit to this uh, question about how things may be, be changing. Um, and also, sometimes, as I was saying about the works, sometimes people go to Europe, actually, to publish them. Um, and consumers find ways to get around this as well, right? I mean, if you really are interested in a book, you can probably go to Europe to buy it, if you have a chance to travel somewhere, and usually you can bring that through customs if it's just for you. And sometimes we discovered at a bookshop, if you sort of say, you go up to the counter and say, I would like such and such, they'll say, oh, well, that's okay. It's sort of sitting under the table. Just don't tell anybody that I, I have it, and, and they'll let you buy the book. So there are ways to kind of get around it, but it still has a rather negative impact. Um, the market. And one thing we found in doing our research is um, there's not really a lot of accurate statistics. There's no New York Times bestseller list that you can look into and say, this is how much sales were on various books, but you can kind of get a feel for, for it from talking to publishers and stuff. And so in general, book production and consumption are just low. It's just a small market. There's a lot of reasons for this. Um, books tend to be less about literature and social science and, more, and have a smaller percentage and more about religious items. There are also wide variations. I mean, there are you know, dozens of countries in the Middle East, all with their own markets, all with their sort of own national characteristics. And one other thing is that there's very limited translation of foreign language into Arabic. It's just, it's woefully small in comparison to other places in the world. Um, for example, at the bottom, you know, the Da Vinci Code was a standout bestseller at 5,000 copies in Jordan. So it kind of gives you a feel that it's hard to be an author, it's hard to make money, hard to produce these things when you don't have a big market to, to sell to. Distribution. And these, the marketing and distribution are somewhat related. Um, because the Middle East is made up of all these different countries, it's it's very hard to distribute across all these different places. So you don't get the kind of economies of scale that you would get. Even if it's small markets in, in individual places, you can't really branch out. And of course, the censorship comes into this as well because you have to submit your book or your movie or whatever to people all over the region. So each one of them has to get their, 
their crack at it. And oftentimes, this is fail, authors fail to kind of become well-known outside of their own country. Um, there are three sort of main outlets. Um, there are book fairs. Maybe 40% of sales come from, uh, from book fairs. Um, generally, the capital city has one good bookstore, and often they survive by selling other items because there just isn't enough um, thing. Another important element is libraries. There's a very limited number of public libraries in the region, and they're very different in some ways than the libraries we're used to. I, I've been a sort of academic author, and I can tell you that in some ways the vast majority, if you put out an academic book, get sold to libraries because they have to buy the copies. So it's actually one way that you kind of get things out. And, um, without libraries, it's really hard to sort of make, make ends meet. Um, and finally, we've, we had this described that the publication and distribution process is really kind of old and inadequate. You know, one publisher said this is like what it was 150 years ago in Britain. There's no marketing. There's very little research. There's not many ways to promote people. And of course, there's copyright infringement. So people don't recognize the intellectual property that, um, that we have. You know, you could sue somebody if you were Xeroxing it or, or old-fashioned or putting it up on the internet or something. You know, that's illegal. You're not allowed to do that. In the Arab world, it's, it's sort of all over the place. So let me just go through some of the policy recommendations we have, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Jeff. Um, and one thing that we, we identify that's critical is this is not so much about um, the U.S. government doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, it, it would be much better to do this in kind of conjunction with public-private par partnerships, working with NGOs, working with other people, because, for a variety of reasons, but one of the main ones being that it's not always helpful to be directly identified with the United States. And so this is one of the important ways you can kind of get around that by working with other with other groups. Um, this is one of the areas I sort of specialize in, which is the Cold War. Um, and again, this sort of explains some of the reasons we're interested in um, the sponsorship of activities by them. Um, another thing that we sort of lesson we can draw is that uh, you need to match the media source with the audience. Even in the United States, most people don't read a tremendous number of books. There's a small number of people who tend to be more influential in the society. So if you're sort of targeting them, then books are a very helpful medium. On the other hand, if you have less educated audience or less engaged audiences, other outlets are more sort of for the mass appeal, movies, television, music. So you, know, you sort of want to target all of these. And finally, that there's actually a value in having work that's not directly engaged with sort of trying to delegitimize violence, um, things that are directly kind of political. Non-political stuff in the Cold War was actually really important and could be in the Middle East as well, and sort of breaking down misconceptions about how Western society works and, and other places in the world work, and sparking debate about how things are possible in the, in the Arab world. So let me just go through our, our recommendations. Um, first, and I think this is especially true now that we have all of this sort of turmoil and some change, censorship should actually should be an important item when we talk to these countries. This is, this is useful to put pressure on them to say, this is important to the United States. You really need to free this up. This is a sign that you are trying to become a different country than, than what you were before. And we should work with our European partners on this, on this question. Um, another thing is the internet may be a helpful way to get around some of the censorship questions. And there's new software that's available. There may be ways to license things, especially if they're out of print, um, for NGOs to make it easy for them to distribute. And, and finally, uh, one thing you can do is sort of establish partnerships between various um, social and professional networks. Uh, this is sort of like, you know, lawyers are present, you know, they're working on the law, they're producing, they can be in conjunction with lawyers who are in Middle East or architects. I mean, sort of building these linkages between the West and these societies is one way you can kind of promote work and, and get them across. Um, and finally, you know, there's a couple others, but 
you should sort of foster authors by having them um, have networks throughout the region. Um, for expanding the market, um, the first thing is just sort of the basics. You know, if you support educational reform, if you promote literacy, that means there's a larger audience for, for books. And, and you should have reading promotional programs to try and encourage this as something that people ought, ought to do. And, you know, lots of communities have this in the United States, and it's not that difficult a thing to do, but it's important. And just generally expanding the opportunities for education of people. Um, people in the Middle East do pay attention to what goes on in, in the United States. Um, so that, and if you sell a book in the United States, it provides a financial income. So in some ways, we should sort of work on promoting some of these authors. And if we do this, one of the ways we could do it is translate Arabic works into English, which would provide it more of a, a broad audience. And um, you, sh you should also, we should also think you should work on sort of branching out, and this is one of the things we're thinking about for future research. Um, you know, if you go to the, you know, again, the bestseller list, oftentimes it's the latest movie that came out that was based upon the book that came out or some other outlet. So, you know, just getting publicity by having them linked together with other media sources is a useful way to reach a lot of different audiences. And finally, <laughs> to talk about improving distribution, <coughs> excuse me, um, and there's some of this that's starting to go on, and we think this is, this is very important. You should try and fund more libraries. Um, the number of uni U.S. universities in the Middle East is starting to expand. Um, there are links with, you could provide linkage between libraries here and libraries in the Middle East. You can work with some of the Gulf countries. All of this is just sort of trying to expand libraries in, in the area. And the important role they actually play in, you know, allowing people to read stuff, educate themselves, just individually to be given to the ability to do that. Um, you can have the internet there. And finally, just sort of also to have kind of other venues, bookshelves, that could just create a positive atmosphere around reading. And, and these, are, you know, we, these are some of the ways we think that you could help work on this. Um, I'm now going to turn this over to Jeff, and he's going to talk about our other uh, work in the children's literature area. Thank you, Lowell. Um, so Lowell led us off today by talking about one type of work that Rand has done in the cultural sphere in the Arab world, and that is identifying the barriers both to the production and the dissemination of literature and other media that promotes tolerance and critical thinking in the Arab world. Now, I'm going to talk about a different aspect of Rand's research in the cultural realm, and that is, in addition to identifying the barriers, we've also identified works, actual works in the region, produced locally that do promote tolerance and critical thinking. We've done this at two different levels for two different audiences, for an adult audience and for a children's audience. I'm going to talk about the children's project we've done, and I have a little show and tell. So if you guys are flagging, I'm sure you're not because Lowell is very engaging, but if you are, it's going to become interactive in a few minutes. So again, we've done two different types of projects in the cultural realm, identifying the barriers and then identifying actual works that promote tolerance and critical thinking. What we haven't done is taken the third step, and that third step would either be working with a government agency, but as Lowell mentioned, uh, preferably maybe a private sector partner or a non-government organization to actually increase the audience uh, for these works we've identified that do promote tolerance and critical thinking. Okay. So for the children's literature project, I should say children's media project we did because it encompasses more than literature. As you can see, the bulk of the materials that we collected were short stories, children's stories, but we also collected some novels that were aimed at young adults, full-length novels, some educational materials, some cartoons that were beamed through satellite television, magazine and comics, and one poetry collection. 
And we subjected all these materials to a coding criteria. That coding criteria was um, developed by two psychologists. They're Americans, but they partnered with counterparts in the region to make sure that their coding criteria was portable to this context. And the reason why they did that was so that, I'm Jeff, so that Jeff or one of the other people that coded the materials, it's not subjective. It's not my judgment that these books promote tolerance and critical thinking. In fact, there's an objective list of criteria. Um, and of these 104 materials that we collected, we accepted about three quarters of them. 36 we had to reject. They weren't necessarily intolerant. It was that they didn't put enough attention on those values. Or sometimes they promoted tolerance, but at the expense of others, for example, Palestinian unity to combat Israel. We didn't want to you know, advocate for the broader dissemination of works like that. So I should say here that although three quarters of the materials that we collected um, did promote tolerance and critical thinking, those were of a group of materials we sub-selected because we thought they would promote tolerance and critical thinking. So it's not three quarters of the children's literature promotes tolerance and critical thinking. It's that three quarters of the literature that we thought were, were good candidates proved to be good candidates. Okay, we're almost to the show and tell. Um, one more. Part, they, the collection here, we, we found some major strengths and some major weaknesses. Among the strengths is we, we interacted with the authors, and a lot of the authors were kind of activists slash authors, so they gave freely of their time. They might have conducted or they, they conduct teacher trainings or they partner with NGOs. We didn't find a lot of people driven by the profit margin. We found a lot of people that believed in the message of tolerance and critical thinking and were out there trying to promote it in, in different ways. I should also say, you know, there is a stereotype that there's not a lot of tolerant thinking in this region. You know, we did quickly identify, uh, you know, 70 plus materials that clearly promoted tolerance and critical thinking on the children's side. A whole host of materials were found on the adult side too. So although there are materials that, um, you know, might be promoting an intolerant worldview, there is literature and media out there that is promoting tolerance. And then we uh, observed a number of recent firsts in the region. So the first 3D cartoon that was produced uh, was produced in the Gulf. Um, and the first full-length novel, which I'm going to show you in a few minutes, that was specifically aimed at tweens, which is kind of an underserved cohort um, where there hasn't been a lot of literature uh, for these individuals. We characterize them as, I think, 11 to 14. Um, and then we did find some weaknesses, though, and that would be poor production quality. So you see... Uh, in one of the books, a lot of the pages were upside down. In others, you had smudged illustrations. Sometimes you have missing pages. So you do have some poor production quality. Also, some of the content is really formulaic. As one of the coders of the material, I can tell you, well, I can't even count the number of times in which an author used a rainbow as a metaphor for diversity. It's tiresome, to be honest. Like, I got tired of it. There was a lot of kind of formulaic content that I don't think would have been too engaging. And I was one of the coders. Our other three coders were Arab and grew up in that region. So they were, it was easy for them to make judgments about what would be engaging or what wouldn't for, for children. And they looked back and said, you know, come on, enough with the rainbow metaphor. Um, and then finally, uh, we actually see very little locally produced children's television programming. So it's not that this television programming is intolerant in some ways, but it's a missed opportunity. And a lot of it is simply dubbed cartoons from the West, so from the United States, but also from Japan.
Okay, show and tell. So I'm going to pass around the book, even if you guys aren't uh, Arabic language readers, I think you'll see the illustrations are great, and I think you'll get a flavor for it regardless. So the first book that we reviewed is called El Khiraf La Ta'akul Al Qatat, uh, Sheep Don't Eat Cats. And it's a, a great story by a Palestinian author, and it's about a family of cats that move into a new neighborhood, and they find themselves with neighbors that are uh, sheep. And there's, at first, there's a lot of uh, mutual suspicion between the two families, and, they, and the cat mother and father say to the kittens, you know, don't engage with the sheep, we don't trust the sheep. But in the end, the youngest kitten and the youngest sheep, they have a curiosity, it overcomes this intolerance, and the message is great because it's really, you know, not only is it a message of tolerance, but it speaks directly to the children and says, you know, overcome the intolerance of the older generation. So it's very empowering for children, too. Uh, we have a number of works by the same author in our collection. He's partnered with the United Nations and with other groups. Okay. Before I introduce this book, I should say that it was much easier to collect material that promoted tolerance that then promoted critical thinking. The reason's actually kind of obvious if you think about it, which is a lot of children's literature is aimed at promoting obedience. You want to be a good kid, right? It says, like, if you make a mess, clean it up, listen to your parents, and so forth. So it's harder to find materials that promote critical thinking. This was one of the exceptions. It was from a Jordanian author. It's called Qasset Walid Ismihi Faiz, uh, the story of a boy named Faiz. A great story. It's about a kid who's... He's like a, a, this creative daydreamer, and he struggles in school, and he gets made fun of in school because he can't deal with rote memorization. He's even bad in his art classes because the art teachers say, you know, reproduce this portrait or reproduce that, and he can't do it. He doesn't think that way. And it's doubly worse for him because his father's a stonemason, and he ends up apprenticing for his father. So you've got this creative kid, and his dad literally cuts square blocks. And so, of course, when he's apprenticing for his father, he wants to make sculptures and do his own thing. And his dad is telling him, no, come on, we're getting paid to uh, cut these stone blocks. Anyway, uh, his father ends up kind of capitulating and enrolling him in an art school. And in the art school, he wins an award. He gets interviewed by television. Um, and he becomes kind of a, you know, changes his image in school and becomes like a big hero. And so uh, uh, this is a great book, I think, that uh, promotes creative thinking. Okay. So I just want to talk about two more books that I think are notable. Um, one is called Malik al-Ashia, the, the, the King of Things. It's a book by an Egyptian author. It, it had a huge following in Egypt. So it was one of the rare books where, you know, it's probably economically viable. I think it's on its third print run. It's very much the equivalent of Harry Potter for the Arab world. I, I, I mean, I think the author would acknowledge he probably took some liberties. But it's about a, a story of a kid that went to a boarding school. And at that boarding school, um, he faces a common problem, the problem of bullying. But he also has superpowers. So superpowers are... He's able to um, communicate with inanimate objects like tables and chairs. And so it's a story that promotes tolerance but through metaphor. So in addition to this bullying, the kids, as kids do, you know, put graffiti and carve in the chairs. And he ends up being a defender for the inanimate objects. He also defends his peers who are bullied. Um, but again, it's notable because it is the, the first 
full-length novel aimed at tweens in the region. And the, the author realized this. He specifically went out to fill this uh, gap in the market. The other book is called A Street Kid. It's a book uh, that we purchased in Lebanon. The reason why it's notable is it breaks a number of taboos. So the kid pictured was a very talented student, but um, his father is an alcoholic and is abusive, abuses him and his mother. And so he ends up having to go into the street and sell flowers in Beirut in order to support his family. Um, but the message is one of knowing your rights, seeking help when you're aggrieved, uh, not just you know, accepting uh, you know, mistreatment because it's your father figure. So very much a, a, an empowering book. And again, deals with some taboo issues like alcoholism and abuse of uh, you know, family abuse. Okay. So we collected this material. What did we do with it? Um, there's hard copies. My office is filled with <laughs> multiple copies of this material. Um, taking up more space than I would like. We also have a searchable database. Um, it's not a pretty database, an Excel spreadsheet, but the reason why it's important is if we were to partner with someone who wanted to disseminate this material, it allows you to sort the material by different characteristics. So for example, if you were looking for stories that might resonate, say, in North Africa versus the Gulf, you could sort the material that was written by a North African author versus an author from the Gulf you'll see the age cohorts. So, you know, I think it's four to six, seven to 10, and 11 to 14. So um, w each book is linked to which of these audience it speaks to and so forth, and the publishing house and some other information that you'd want. And then finally, we have this more visually appealing catalog, which is a picture of the color cover illustration paired with a summary of the work. In case we're partnering with someone that wasn't an Arabic speaker, they would know what the what the book is about, the author background, so you get some ideas about who these people are, the title and the author in Arabic and English, ISBN and all that um, information. So what I'm going to do now is hand it off to Dahlia and she's going to talk uh, more broadly about our work in the cultural sphere. Okay, thanks Lowell and Jeff and I'm going to be very brief just wrapping up this excellent presentation by my colleagues. Um, essentially, what you've heard today uh, really came out into two publications from RAND, uh, one on what Lowell focused on, the barriers uh, to why some of these great creative works are not getting out there more in the region, and the second one focusing on this uh, children's material, which is so captivating. Um, we uh, really believe in a way, just to bring this back to the big picture, that this kind of material is really an untapped resource. This initial resource we have done really shows how much potential there is in the region uh, to create and, um, and to uh, invest in these kinds of works that are really challenging norms and conventional views um, in ways that are really important and are more important than ever in the post-Arab Spring environment. Uh, and we think there's more where this came from. And one of our goals, or one of our hopes, is that this initial work will be utilized. We don't, you know, we don't do dissemination. We're a research organization. But we hope it will be util utilized by those, as Jeff was suggesting, who could get this material out, who could integrate it into education systems in, in the case of children's material. Uh, because there is a real contest of ideas going on in this region. It's not about the US promoting what we think 
to the region. It's about supporting regionals themselves who are offering alternative viewpoints, who are promoting tolerance and critical thinking, who are promoting different ways, who are tired of their authoritarian uh, governments, a young generation hoping for better futures. They have a voice, and they've been uh, and they've been sh and they've been showing their voice through these artistic works. Our goal is to figure out how to help these people. And um, we, in terms of future research, uh, one, I think a lot of uh, research needs to be focused in this post-Arab Spring environment about what are the continued barriers that these young artists are facing. You know, have these openings in Egypt, Tunisia, and elsewhere, are they leading to lowering of censorship? Are we really seeing a, a much freer um, form of cultural expression going on? Or are these young people facing the same kinds of obstacles that they faced before? Uh, we just don't know, and it's early, but we think uh, getting on the ground will be very important in determining that. Uh, and we do think there may be, at this moment in particular, new opportunities to engage these artists, working both on adult material and children's material, uh, and to figure out a way how we can support them um, and, and in ways that don't backfire. Uh, and that just skips to the last bullet here about public-private uh, partnerships with Lowell discussed was so critical in our Cold War efforts. It's really important not to have overt government support for these artists. Um, we have to be sensitive to the fact um, that they have their own environments and they may not want overt government support, but there are many private institutions who are interested in increasing cultural expression and cultural freedom in this region. We can partner, the U.S. government can try to partner with some of those organizations, and we think that we need to figure out more creative ways to do that. And finally, I think just getting this material to broader audiences, it shouldn't be so hard to find. I mean, Jeff can give you stories, of, and, and, and the adult uh, project as well. Uh, my colleagues, you, you know, native Arabic speakers, you know, very resourceful people uh, had a really hard time finding these materials. It was not easy. If it's that hard for us, you can imagine in the region how hard it is. And any of you have been to Arab capitals, you see the streets flooded with all kinds of materials on the sidewalks. That's, those are not particularly engaging materials. Those are not the kind of materials Jeff was talking about today. Those are readily available. The kind of works we've identified are not, and we need to figure out how that can change. Um, and one big area where I think has a huge potential for the future is not as much in the book or literature arena, as important as that is, and I think we should be fostering that. Uh, but as Lowell pointed out, uh, there is not a big reading culture, uh, at least at the moment in this region. Hopefully that will change. Uh, but, but you have to deal with the reality as it is. And these days, film, but to a much greater extent, social media now. More people in the region are watching YouTube clips than they are going to movie theaters. In fact, there aren't that many movie theaters in Arab capitals either, in addition to bookstores. There are some, but it's not a big movie-going culture either. Uh, but DVDs are readily available. There's ways to get to young people in particular. Uh, we need to be figuring out how this great material that we've started to identify can be merged into these new social media outlets to reach much broader audiences. And we do think, you know, this isn't the only way to affect the contest of ideas, but it's a very important way. And culture has really been neglected in this region, um, or our cultural diplomacy, I should say, has been neglected. There's a, a rich culture in the region. That's actually the point of our project, is to demonstrate that. Uh, and so we look forward to hearing from you uh, any ideas you may have about how to move this forward um, and achieve these goals. So thank you for your attention today, and we look forward to our conversation.
This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.